0: My view is that this is really a very sensible public health intervention, especially given the inability to to the fact that with COVID, we know that asymptomatic individuals can transmit. And that fact makes it much harder to say, oh, well, here's this least restrictive alternative you should have done looking at who's sick or who's coughing or the like.
1: A lot of those laws, a lot of those agencies arise from this claim that what they're doing is, is dealing with problems that, that, that cross state lines, that are big enough, that really impact uh, more than kind of one community with one, within one state. And so that's, that's kind of the theory that has allowed you know, us to uh, create these agencies, to fund them, to be prepared for the kinds of crises that, that are uh, you know, really the kinds of modern problems that the framers uh, couldn't have really imagined back in the late 18th century.
2: Welcome to the award-winning podcast, Lawyer to Lawyer, with J. Craig Williams, bringing you the latest legal news and observations with the leading experts in the legal profession. You're listening to Legal Talk Network. Welcome to Lawyer to Lawyer on the Legal Talk Network. I'm Craig Williams, coming to you from Southern California. I write a legal blog called May It Please the Court. have two books out titled The Sled and How to Get Sued. Well, before we introduce today's topic, we'd like to take this time to thank our sponsor, Blue Jay Legal. Blue Jay Legal's AI-powered foresight platforms accurately predict court outcomes and accelerate case research by using factors instead of keywords. You can learn more at BlueJLegal.com. That's Blue, the letter J, legal.com. BlueJLegal.com. As our nation battles the COVID-19 pandemic, our president's response and leadership is being tested Ventilators are in short supply. Hospitals across the states are in desperate need of personal protective equipment, including masks, supplies, tests, beds, governors across the state and across the country have been hitting the airwaves, pleading for assistance from the federal government. So what are the respective roles of the federal government and the state governments in a time of crisis? Well, today on Lawyer to Lawyer, we're going to discuss federalism and the coronavirus pandemic. We'll explore the concepts of federalism and states' rights, the tug of war between the governors and the president over COVID-19, leadership during the crisis, and the constitutional underpinnings of who's in charge of what. And to do that, we've got two great guests for you today. Our first guest is Robert Tsai. He's the professor of law at American University College of Law, where he teaches constitutional law. Professor Tsai's third book, Practical Equality, Forging Justice in a Divided Nation, was published by W.W. W. Norton in 2019. Robert's also working on a major book project that details how the presidents sees a leadership role over the development of constitutional rights and liberties. Welcome to the show, Robert. Thanks for having me. And next up, we have Professor of Law, Glenn Cohen. He's a faculty director at Petrie-Flom Center for Health Law and Biotechnology and Bioethics at Harvard Law School. Professor Cohen is one of the world's leading experts on the intersection of bioethics and the law, as well as health law. He also teaches civil procedure. Glenn is the author, co-author, editor, or co-editor of more than 15 books, including Readings in Comparative Health Law and Bioethics from Carolina Academic Press in 2020, as well as Disability, Health, Law, and Bioethics from Cambridge University Press, also in 2020. Welcome to the show, Glenn. Thank you for having me. Well, Let's turn first a little bit of background about what we're talking about. Robert, perhaps you can set us with the context and the background of the Constitution and what it says about what states' rights are and what federal rights are when it comes to dealing with these kind of emergency situations that we're facing now.
1: Well, I think that most important thing to to think about in terms of our constitutional structure, in terms of how uh, we regulate uh, matters concerning health is is that traditionally the power has rested uh, with the states. Uh, The states have uh, what's called broad uh, police power to uh, deal with the the health, the welfare, and the morals of the people uh, within each state. By contrast, uh, our U.S. Constitution wasn't granted that general police power to deal with, with health as an original matter. And what that means is that uh, in the past, when we've had to deal with things like smallpox and other kinds of epidemics, our, our kind of history and our practice has been kind of seen through the prism of states, you know, working as aggressively as they can to um, kind of warn citizens and and uh, lock things down so so as to slow the, the spread of of disease. Uh, there are certain things that the president can do, and we can certainly talk about uh, what some of those things are, and those powers have certainly expanded over the years. But that, that basic uh, difference between a lot of power in the hands of the states over health and um, sort of select powers that a president might be able to wield, I think remains.
2: And what do you think, Glenn, the Constitution says about the federal role in this pandemic?
0: So here I think it's important also to distinguish between the branches of government in that there is a significant power of the president, for example, foreign affairs type powers to set policy regarding who may enter the country, to set 14 day quarantines for people who thrown in from certain places. And that's not really in dispute. We do have some federal statutes that speak on the matter where Congress has kind of acted again, mostly focused on interstate uh, powers and interstate commerce. I think what's interesting uh, about this setting is in some ways it's a little bit of the reverse, just some irony here, in that uh, during NFIB versus Stelius and the cases about the Affordable Care Act, part of the rhetoric was, oh no, 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 the federal government should not be the one uh, doing this. It should be uh, the states. That was kind of one of the conservative positions. And here, one of the offshots of that kind of analysis is that maybe the federal government has less power than you might want it to, even congressionally, once that view of the Congress clause has been
2: accepted. Is the constitution addressed at all in the, does it address emergencies at all in terms of coordinating these kind of responses on a federal level?
1: Well, the, the constitution doesn't specifically talk about uh, health at all this is one of the, one of the gaps. Uh, as far as Congress's powers, certainly uh, most of the power uh, that Congress has used in the past, for example, Glenn mentioned uh, that there is this law that, that, that allows the government to sort of intervene and uh, say quarantine, prevent the, the transmission of, of disease between kind of state to state. That federal law uh, rests on Congress's sort of commerce power kind of extrapolated to deal with the problem of, uh, of disease. That's a law that has been sort of rarely invoked. When we look to the president's powers, there again, we we don't have anything explicit uh, talking about about health, but there is this general understanding that the president is the branch of government in our in our federal government that that is sort of empowered to act quickly, decisively, uh, to deal with perhaps situations like this, and 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 this is you know allowed a kind of growth in terms of a leadership role for president in in kind of national crises. And I think this is the kind of thing that qualifies. One of the laws that uh, we haven't talked about is the Defense Production Act. Uh, This is one that was uh, written by Congress in, um, I guess, 1950 or so. And this is one that President Trump uh, has invoked, but he has had qualms uh, in terms of kind of using it maximally. Uh, It allows him to force a certain industries, uh, companies to uh, enter into contracts with the federal government, say produce necessary medical supplies, ventilators, uh, masks, this sort of th- sort of thing. But he's been a little, a little bit reluctant in terms of uh, forcing people to the table and making them do things. Um, he's tried to use it as a little bit of a, I guess, a, a chip, a bargaining chip to try to get them to cooperate. And this has certainly reduced resistance. Uh, In terms of, uh, you know, company maybe won't run to court and litigate, but the jury is sort of still out in terms of whether this is going to work to get the kind of widespread cooperation we would want to see in an emergency.
2: That's a great point. Glenn, let's talk about that a little bit further. President Trump, in certain circumstances, has said that this is akin to a war and certainly he has war powers under the Constitution. Is it possible to declare a, a war on a pandemic and, and have it succeed to enhance federal powers in this circumstance?
0: I think the answer is probably no. And, you know, Robert is much more of an expert on the war powers of the Constitution than I am. But let me just put it this way. Whatever you think about the Article Two powers of the presidency and the inherent powers of the president, it's hard to think that it would allow him, for example, to overcome governors, well-founded public health regulations and activities in this area. And one of the things that strikes you, so truthfully speaking, there've only been a handful of cases involving public health that have ever made it up to the US Supreme Court, but they're almost always about state initiatives, whether it's about uh, smallpox vaccination in uh, Cambridge, where I live uh, in the early 1900s, whether it's about whether uh, Louisiana, New Orleans can turn away a ship called Britannia because of yellow fever. It's almost always about state activities in these areas. So it would be quite, let's just say, a, a right turn or a left, a left turn, I should say, for the president to try to assert this authority. And this is one place, you know, I think think what you will about the president, but I do think that the average American tends to have a thought, why isn't the president doing more about this? And the truth of the matter is that the constitutional scheme is envisioned by the framers. It really wasn't envisioned that the president would be the public health authority.
2: Let's talk about what happens with cruise ships. You know, you mentioned the case from the Supreme Court about turning ships away with fevers. Robert, what's the circumstance here where we have, by some estimates, nearly 50,000 people at sea?
1: First of all, it it sounds like a, a complete humanitarian disaster, and it sounds like we've, we've got Americans also on, on some of these cruise ships, and I haven't been following it that closely. I did see that there was a, a, a piece saying that the governor of Florida is refusing to allow the cruise ships to, to, to dock, including the ones that have Americans. Uh, I'm not sure if he's right. He claims that there aren't any Floridians on those boats, but in any event, there's a, there's a sort of question of whether the governor is actually gonna take action or he's just sort of expressing his view at the moment it could be that the local county or the city controlling kind of the area where the boats would land would have uh, more direct authority there. My sense is that they're waiting to see how the local government will behave, but it could be a real mess. Um, let's say the, the mayor decides the same way as the governor and, and bars the ships from landing. Then I, I suppose if you're on the ships, you've got family on the ships, you're hoping that the president or the federal government will intervene in some way. If they don't, then at some point you're you're probably looking at advocacy groups or lawyers to try to intervene and, and get some kind of judicial action here. There, I'm I'm not as well versed in exactly what they would be invoking, but uh, certainly if they're Americans on the boat, they would have probably an easier time claiming that they have some privileges and immunities or constitutional rights uh, that are otherwise being infringed upon by by their treatment.
2: Glenn, do you have some thoughts on that? I have. A few friends that are actually on sailboats cruising the world, and they report that they can't dock anywhere.
0: No, I think it's, uh, it's quite correct. So first again, I want to say from a public health perspective, not sure any of this is wise policy. You know, the phrase that comes to mind is the murderer is already in the house, right? And the idea that at this point, we're going to stop people from entering uh, the country who may be in very dire straits and need ventilators and the like. You certainly can quarantine them, right? Just abutting the chef and stuff like that. So, from a public health perspective, don't think it's a great idea. But, you know, governors and uh, the president get to make their own decisions. I think Robert is right that the constitutional problems with a, barring people from deporting if they are Americans, is an easier claim of a constitutional violation than if they are foreign citizens, and probably it looks something like the right to travel or possibly something from the due process clause. I mean, something we haven't talked about is that all public health orders are judged under the standards of the due process clause, which requires you know, an analysis that looks to as there a compelling state interests. Is this the least restrictive alternative, and is there a procedural to process? And so I imagine that there would be interesting questions with those orders that tried to block Americans from deboarding, whether there weren't less restrictive alternatives than that.
2: Robert, what about religious exemptions to this? I mean, we've had circumstances where a pastor in Florida has now been arrested for holding a church service on a Sunday in violation of the governor's orders. There are several other pastors in southern states that are doing the same thing. Claiming that there is some type of a religious exemption to a, a public health order?
1: Yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of a mess right now. It, it looks like we've got governors kind of doing different things. In, in Florida, where at least until, uh, I guess, is it today, uh, the governor finally had issued a, a statewide shelter-in-place order or something. But until recently, the governor had been pretty hands-off, allowing the uh, local governments to kind of enact restrictions if they wanted to and and that's that's what the uh, the minister in florida i guess it's hillsborough county was arrested for violating at least two counts of violating that local order and in texas what i understand there's something different going on while the local governments have uh, enacted similar restrictions trying to uh, you know bend the curve i saw that the governor of texas recently has, has kind of countermanded those local orders and kind of written religious organizations into the essential businesses description. So you've you've got the situation where it looks like jurisdictions are doing different things. Obviously, we're gonna see what the impact is from a public health perspective. Constitutionally, I think the way you look at these questions is that if someone raises a a religious uh, liberty objection to a law, uh, we've got a bunch of cases that typically say that if a judge is to review it, one thing they look for is whether the law is uh, kind of generally drawn to apply to most everybody. And then the second question is, is there a kind of a compelling justification, a strong one? And here it seems like there's a pretty uh, pretty strong one uh, that A, they're even handed uh, generally, and second, that they're trying to uh, kind of very, in a very reasonable way, trying to limit the spread of, uh, of this uh, communicable disease, which seems to spread much more easily than than initially thought. And so people gather in these big groups, whether they're a religious group or they're uh, in a business or something else, it's going to have the same sort of uh, public health problems. So I think that the, that the local governments, even the state ones that are restricting the religious groups in the same way as other groups, are going to have a pretty good argument that, you know, that they're able to do this consistent with the with the First Amendment. But on the other hand, we do have some of these other cases that, is, that have said you know, occasionally the religious claim is so strong, the inter- the interference with religious practices so uh, so strong that we we sort of carve out their practice. And you know, I think I think uh, this is a sort of thing where the the regulation should be able to survive these defiant ministers or, or others should be forced to uh, at least temporarily stop doing what they're doing in the name of uh, reducing disease. But but we'll sort of see. I mean, I think some of this stuff will get litigated, from what I imagine.
2: Right. Well, Glenn, I'd like to ask you that same question, but before we move on to our next segment, we're going to take a quick break to hear a message from our sponsor. We'll be right back. Predict legal outcomes with Blue Jay Legal's Foresight platforms. Using AI to analyze thousands of cases and administrative rulings, Blue Jay Legal can predict with 90% accuracy on average how a judge would likely rule in your case. Plus, you can research by factors and outcomes to find the relevant cases in seconds. Stay ahead of the curve and learn more at BlueJLegal.com. That's Blue, the letter J, legal.com. BlueJLegal.com. And welcome back to Lawyer to Lawyer. I'm Craig Williams, and with us today is Robert Tsai, constitutional law professor at American University College of Law, and Professor Glenn Cohen, faculty director at the Petrie-Flom Center for Health Law Policy, Biotechnology, and Bioethics at Harvard Law School. And right before the break, we were talking about the potential for religious exemptions from public health orders. Glenn, do you have some thoughts on that?
0: Yeah, well, I think they, I think Robert's exactly right. I'd be very skeptical of a court that. Join them from uh, shutting down large gatherings from churches and the like, and you know, oddly, this is going to sound a little bit perhaps just maybe from the sacred to the profane. But there's some echoes of uh, during the HIV/AIDS crisis, where, for example, San Francisco shut down a bunch of bathhouses and other municipalities did as well on similar grounds. And right, if you believe there's a right towards sexual relations in the Constitution might think similar kind of infringement there. Uh, but you know my hope is that religious institutions don't push this because my view is that this is really a very sensible public health intervention, especially given the inability to, to the fact that with COVID we know that asymptomatic individuals can transmit. And that fact makes it much harder to say, oh, well, here's this least restrictive alternative you should have done, looking at who's sick or who's coughing or what like, since we really don't know. And until widespread testing becomes available, and even then, this seems like an appropriate thing, both a compelling state interest and a less restrictive alternative, I can't think of one.
2: Robert, given that the public health rights seem to be largely reserved to the state's how is it that we happen to have a national institutes of health and a center for Diseases control and and some other federal type of health organizations
1: well a lot of that has to do with the with our expanded understandings of the need for a, a federal government to, to to do more than uh, what the original constitution had laid out but but technically we're still being faithful to it in the sense that a lot of that is coming from congressional action the assertion of what i mentioned before Congress's power to regulate interstate commerce. So a, a lot of those laws, a lot of those agencies arise from this claim that what they're doing is, is dealing with problems that, that, that cross state lines that are big enough that really impact uh, more than kind of one community with one within one state. And so that's, that's kind of the theory that has allowed, you know, us to uh, create these agencies, to fund them, to be prepared for the kinds of crises that, that are, you know, really the kinds of modern problems that the framers couldn't have really imagined back in the late 18th century.
2: Glenn, let's build on that a little bit and kind of speculate about what potentially is going to come out of this situation from a legislative standpoint. I mean, it seems obvious that a coordinated federal response would have cleaned up a lot of the messes that we've been talking about. But we all know that you know, the grab of federal power goes against the basic elements of the Constitution that reserves rights even to the people. What are your thoughts?
0: Yeah, well, realize that a lot of the health care regulation by the United States, by the federal government, is done through the pet spending clause. So in particular, you look at something like MTALA, which is a statute that requires every hospital to treat and stabilize people in emergency conditions who show up. The way that is achieved is as a condition of any hospital that receives Medicare or Medicaid funding. So, one strategy to do this would be to build, if we wanted to have more federal control over this sort of stuff, would be to build it into the spending clause. But again, here there's a bit of a rub in that the justices. Basically, in NFIB, for Sebelius, a number of them were worried about this coercion doctrine and the idea when the federal government tried to expand Medicaid, the justices, including you know, Justice Kagan, my own boss, said, well, actually, you know what, that might violate and coerce the states in a way that's inappropriate and against the framers' intent. So I could imagine that some of what you might think might be wise policy, even if you thought you could achieve it via the spending clause, might also be constrained in this way.
2: Well, Robert, let's take a walk up the Bill of Rights and talk about the Second Amendment and perhaps the Fourth and the Fifth. I mean, we have seen gun stores staying open. We've seen courts closing. I've gotten an email from my local courts here in Orange County, California, that says we're going to put off the 10-day requirement for going to trial. How does that work?
1: Well, certainly the states who are mostly kind of taking the lead here and and. Regulating in, in, in lots of aggressive ways in a number of these places, if it doesn't affect a right that is specifically mentioned in the Bill of Rights or a right that's not mentioned but we consider to be what's called a, a fundamental right but an unenumerated one, you know, as long as it doesn't do that, then they're going to have a, a wide berth to be able to 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 make those restrictions. But you mentioned the Second Amendment. Of course, now we're living in a in a post Heller world. That's the decision that um, the Supreme Court had handed down, saying that. The right to bear arms is, is um, an individual right, not just one that is conditioned upon membership in a militia. And so that means that in theory, that right is something that people could complain about in the same way that we've got reports where uh, governors in some red states are, are trying to take advantage of the coronavirus crisis to, to uh, close down uh, clinics, or at least uh, temporarily shut them down as non-essential businesses. And I, and I think that that raises more visibly this concern that, you know, certain kinds of restrictions might interfere with some of these individual rights. The right to body integrity um, to abortion, you could say, is on different footing than, say, your right to go get a get a gun. But there will be a lot of people who disagree with that. And I suspect some of those things will uh, will actually be uh, litigated.
2: Well, gentlemen, it looks like we've reached the end of our program, so we'd like to take this time to invite our guests to share their final thoughts and their contact information. So, Glenn, I'd like to turn to you first and kind of have you address the question that's been more rolling in my mind we're in a moment of history, I think, and, and probably comparable to the challenges that faced George Washington, that faced Lincoln and faced FDR. I mean, we have certainly have some economic disasters to look forward to. We have people out of work. Let's talk about where we are in this moment of history. And as you wrap up. Oh,
0: great. An easy question to finish with. Thanks a lot. No, I think, uh, let me put it this way. I think this would be an interesting challenge, the same way 9-11 was, to the idea of the rule of law and what's appropriate and what's pragmatic and what to do it but don't tell me is sometimes put. In that, I think in many of these things, you'll see people rush into the courts seeking injunctions, seeking temporary restraining order, even for something like somebody being removed from a ventilator to make way for someone else. And I think it'll be very interesting to see whether the courts... Respond spawn now, whether they give the benefit of the doubt or they find a way of refusing to take action. And then after the crisis has passed, kind of pass on this uh, via civil liability and the like. But I think it's quite a difficult position. We're going to be putting judges in the next few months. And in that, we're going to be asking them to make hugely monumental decisions based on information and training that they don't really have in terms of epidemiology. And I just think that that is, you know, an unfortunate situation. And whether we will have done well or badly, my guess is it'll take us a decade to really understand what we did and what the modifications are more generally for constitutional law, just as it took us at least a decade, 9-11.
2: Great. Thank you. And Robert?
1: I, I would encourage people to, to pay attention to two things. One, the question of leadership, and then two, the structural weaknesses in our government and in our economy that are, that are being laid bare. I think in emergencies, those are the, the two sort of recurring themes that are worth paying attention to. When it comes to leadership, we certainly have different models of leadership, right? We've got, say, President Trump, who has significant power despite some of the the legal, uh, the, the, the sort of different, uh, differently structured uh, bases of emergency power. He still has a, a number of uh, of sources of authority that he's not yet invoked, and even when he's invoked certain things like the Defense Production Act, he's been reluctant to sort of go full bore. Some of that has to do with probably his skill set, uh, and some of this probably has to do with the with his philosophy of government and his view of the economy which initially was to do as little as possible to to harm the you know the stock market and big business and so forth but that strategy didn't work in the meantime uh, all of these governors and mayors uh, sort of jumped into the fray and used their powers uh, creatively and expansively you know perhaps we'll see that at times they went a little too far but we see these different models of leadership i think it'll be uh, important to look at those. The second thing is, I think, structure. We've seen that our workforce is vulnerable in ways that we, many people probably didn't realize before. Healthcare is something that has a, been a structural issue, and uh, to the extent that uh, so many millions of Americans' healthcare is is tethered to their jobs, we see those jobs disappearing. Many of those jobs probably won't return, and this is, uh, you know, hopefully going to cause us to think more fundamentally about about the workforce and the way we we think about uh, the right to healthcare.
2: Well, gentlemen, thank you very much for joining us today. I'd like to thank our guests, Robert Tsai and Glenn Cohen, both professors of law. It's a pleasure having you on the show at this kind of momentous moment in history. Well, for our listeners, if you've liked what you heard today, please rate us an Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or your favorite podcasting app. You can also visit us at LegalTalkNetwork.com, where you can sign up for our newsletter. I'm Craig Williams. Thanks for listening. Join us next time for another great legal topic. When you want legal, think lawyer to lawyer. Thanks for listening to Lawyer to Lawyer, produced by the broadcast professionals at Legal Talk Network. Subscribe to the RSS feed on legaltalknetwork.com or in iTunes.